So we are here in the section of Matthew where Jesus is shown to be expressing his power to the world. And I say power over the world, expressing it to the world, because aside from being almighty, Jesus is showing his authority in all situations here in these chapters of Matthew. Most of you, maybe some of you don't, but most of you know who I'm talking about when I refer to Barney Fife. You know, Barney Fife is the, is the haphazard deputy of Andy Griffith, the, the sheriff of Mayberry. And Barney Fife was the, the comic relief. He was, Andy was the straight man and Barney was, was the one who was always saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, tripping over the things. Barney could not be trusted to have bullets in his gun. Right and Barney, Barney, while the the expression of the ability of Barney as a deputy was expressed in that one single bullet that he was allowed to have, and, and Barney wasn't even allowed to keep that bullet in his gun. That bullet had to stay in Barney's shirt pocket. Right and, and whenever Barney felt like it was time to use his ability with that bullet, he wasn't allowed to just reach into his pocket, grab it, and put it into his gun. What did he have to do? He had to say, Andy, is it time for my bullet? Does, should, I, should I use my bullet? And really, Barney's lack of ability in the fact that he only had one bullet and his lack of authority, and the fact that he wasn't even allowed to keep that, he had to, to check himself with Andy as to whether or not he was allowed to use that bullet at any given time. That really, those two ideas, ability and authority, express the idea of power. Power is, is both the ability and the authority to use that ability. If you, if you lack the ability, even though you have authority, you're not really powerful. If you, if you have the ability, but yet you don't have the authority to use it, you're not really powerful. Here in Matthew 8 and 9, we see that Jesus both has the ability and the authority on earth to use that ability. Now, that does not mean we we don't confuse that with the idea that Jesus had submitted himself to the Father and Holy Spirit. That Jesus was fully submitted to the direction of the Father. He was fully submitted to the, the direction of the Holy Spirit in the use of his power. But in, in reference to creation, in reference to all other created beings, both us as natural created beings and angels and demons, supernatural created beings, Jesus had full ability and full authority to express that ability here on this earth. He is a powerful king. Little Jimmy, I probably shared this story about Nine years ago, and I and I and I asked Kelly last night. I said, 
you think it's all right for me to talk about Jimmy and the rake? She said, go for it. So little Jimmy had been learning about the power and the loving presence of God from his mom. He, they had been uh, reading the scriptures together. He had been learning about the fact that God is everywhere. And everywhere that God is, he is there with his loving presence and his loving power. The fact that God is in uh, all places at all times at, uh, at the same eternal moment does not mean his power is somehow divided up among those areas. Being almighty, he's got all the expression of his power at the same place and time. And so Jimmy had run into an unfortunate circumstance, and that was the fact that he had been cleaning up the yard, he had been raking up some leaves during the day, and he had left the rake in the yard. Well, about after dinner time, his mom reminded him, Jimmy, I told you about the rake that you'd left out in the yard, and now it's time to go out there before you go to bed and put the rake away. You know, being a good mom wanting to, to uh, hammer home the, the importance of responsibility. Well, Jimmy looks at his mom and he says, Jimmy, uh, Mom, I get it, but it's dark out there. She's like, well, Jimmy, you were told to put the rake away when it was light outside, and the rake still needs to be put away. Jimmy's like, yeah, but Mom, it's dark out there, right? I do not enjoy the dark. And Jimmy's mom is quite aware of this, and she says, you know, Jimmy, what have we been learning about the presence of God? He's like, well, he's everywhere, right? So is he out in the backyard right now, Jimmy? Yep, he is. Okay, what have we been learning about the power of God? Well, it, it's his, he's powerful everywhere that he is, right? So is he able to protect you in the backyard, Jimmy? He's like, yeah. She's like, okay, well, Jimmy, now it's time to put this truth into action. He's like, okay. So he goes out to the back door, and he opens the door up, and he says, God, I know you're out there. I believe that you are present everywhere. And God, I know that you are able to do anything. And so in faith, God, I'm just going to say, can you bring me the rake? <laughs> I don't think God brought him the rake. It didn't quite work that way. Last week, Josh challenged us to acknowledge the authority of Jesus in our lives. And what, what follows is this, is a willingness to give everything in obedience to King Jesus. We learned about this from Jesus' statements to two men who desired to follow him. The first was warned that following Jesus would mean living in a way that we might not consider acceptable. But Jesus has the authority to define how we are to live when we desire to follow him. And the second man was warned that following Jesus could mean not living up to other people's expectations. Not living up to the expectations of the culture around us. But Jesus has the authority to define our expectations of how we should live for him. A lot of what takes place during Jesus' Galilean ministry 
is centered around the Sea of Galilee. That's why it's the Galilean ministry. And that's, that's the part of his ministry that we are in here in the book of Matthew right now. And, and this morning we learn from one of those instances which it's going to, the Sea of Galilee itself is going to model biblical submission. And from the experience, I want to encourage you here this morning. Trust Jesus' authority over the natural world that he created. Trust Jesus' authority over the natural world that he created. We pick up in verse 23 of chapter 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. So Jesus is initiating this experience here. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? You know, we might be surprised by the fact that, that Jesus is asleep during this torrential storm. I think it speaks to his humanity. He is obviously exhausted from all of the activity of ministering and healing. Jesus has full power, but, but during this time, his physical body was submitted to the conditions around it. So, so he was experiencing life the way that we are, the way that we do. In full submission to God the Father. And, and it happened to happen that when God the Father would say, use your power, he did so. But Jesus was still living in a body that got tired. While he's almighty, he was submissive to God the Father in the use of his power. And here we see he's tired. Matthew contrasts the disciples' fear with Jesus' calm, his calm control over the situation. And Matthew describes Jesus as addressing the disciples' fear, their weak faith, before rebuking the storm. The idea here is that they had faith, but it was a weak faith. In some ways, Jesus, the teacher, is saying, there's still growth in your faith to be done here. Faith in God is what's intended to overcome fear. Hear that. Faith in God is what is intended to overcome fear. Trusting God is what calms the torrents within us. And faith is usually grown before God makes things easier for us to trust Him. Jesus rebukes the wind. He demonstrates his personal authority as master of the created order. You know, uh, how many of you, when you were a younger sibling or, or, or um, with a, maybe a friend who was trying to act like they had authority over you, 
that your response as a kid was, you're not the boss of me. The wind could not say that to Jesus. Jesus was the boss of the wind. Why was Jesus the boss of, the, of the, all creation? It's because he was intricately involved in creating the entire cosmos, the whole universe. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 tells us he is the, invi- the image of the invisible God. In other words, if we, if we want to know what the invisible God is like, look at Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now just as a tangent here, when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that does not mean he was the first created thing. It means that he carries the authority of the big brother of all of it. And none of creation could look at Jesus and say, you're not the boss of me. He was the boss of all of creation and still is because he made it. As we're told there in Colossians 1. We, we see a term pop up in our passages in um, really Matthew 7 through uh, Matthew 8. And that's the term great. You might remember this term is megas. In the Greek, there you learned a, a Greek word there for you, megas. You're familiar with it. But in Matthew 7, we were told about the house that was built on sand when it fell. Jesus' analogy, he said, great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of that house. In Matthew 8, 1, we, we read about as Jesus came down from the mountain, great cloud, crowds followed him. The crowds were great. We read here in our passage that in verse 24, there arose a great storm, a mega storm on the Sea of Galilee. And lastly, we read in verse 26, after Jesus said to his disciples, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. I I notice... Things like that, part of studying is, is picking up things like that and realizing, okay, there, I, I, there's got to be a reason why Matthew uses this term to describe all these different situations. We see Jesus bring a, the great storm to a point of great calm. He had enough power to fix it all, to bring it all to a great Calm. And so in the context of chapters 8 and 9, we've seen Jesus has the authority to heal sickness. He heals the incurable leper. He heals the distant Gentile servant. He heals the older mother-in-law of Peter. And as I said before, Josh shared with us last week how Jesus has the authority to express his expectations to those who desire to follow him. That he has the authority to trump family or cultural expectations as well. And now it's as if Matthew has shown us that we can check off the box that Jesus has the authority over nature also. Of course, we learn from the disciples' reaction. They marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? In Greek stories... 
prior to this, uh, leading up to this ancient, they were, there were ancient tales of gods and demigods, you know, fanciful ideas of, of these um, beings that were able to conquer the forces of nature. And it might, that might be an indication of, oh, this person has a little bit of the gods in them. In Jewish tradition, someone exercising total authority over the elements of nature indicated this belongs to God alone. God alone would be able to stand up and command and nature would obey him. The fact is, though, we live in real circumstances that force us to make decisions every day. Will we trust the God who has total control? Will we take our issues to him? Will we wait on him? I so appreciate uh, Curtis's reference to the idea that, that no one fells a tree with one swing of the axe. And in the same way, very seldomly, Does God exercise his power in response to prayer with one request? It's helpful to hear real events that allow us to see what it looks like to trust in God. And you're probably familiar with the Old Testament account, the event of three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that were strangers in Babylon that had been, had been exiled, a part of the exile, the first group of exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon, and that were placed in positions of influence there, but they refused to obey the king's order to bow down and worship the golden image that he had erected of himself. And, and so instead of doing so, they had chosen to, to receive the punishment that was was prescribed for this, and that would be thrown into a fiery furnace. But they trusted that that God could deliver them. And King Nebuchadnezzar has them ready to be hauled up and, and tossed into this fiery furnace. And their response to him in Daniel 3 is this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Uh, so you got to imagine King Nebuchadnezzar's like, I don't see him here. Like, my guards have a hold of you. My soldiers are surrounding you. That you can't even move a limb. In their grasp. They're just about to walk you up and drop you into this fiery furnace. And you're saying your God can deliver you. Of course what's even more impressive from their statement. In this, in this uh, statement they make to Nebuchadnezzar. That they said but if not. Meaning if he doesn't deliver us. Let it be known to you O king. That we will not serve your gods. Or worship the golden image that you have set up. But in this event, we see that the God who made fire, the God who made the physical world, suspended the laws of nature. So that when these three men were were thrown into the fiery furnace, the fire did not even make them smell like smoke. 
They were not burned at all. And no matter what the physical challenges that lie before you, God has absolute authority over them. He allows them in our lives for his purposes. He can deal with them in answer to prayer. He can empower us to glorify him as we walk through those circumstances. But we should not hesitate to ask him to exercise his power of healing, his power of changing, even what seem like unchangeable circumstances. And the fact is that fear is overcome by faith in God's ability and his loving intention toward us. God is great. God is good. We can trust in that no matter the circumstances. We can trust in that no matter his answer to our prayers regarding our circumstances. We trust in that, that that God is great and that God is good in, in asking him for salvation. We trust in the fact that though Great is our sin, though though terrible is our offense of his holiness. So much so that it required the sacrifice of his son in order for it to be paid for. We trust that his forgiveness is able to cover our sin because of the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We trust it because he has offered it to us. We trust it because he has called us to take it freely. To take his yoke on us that is easy. Because Jesus is pulling with his power alongside of us. Next we read about the destination of Jesus' journey across the lake. And we read, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass by that way. So everybody in that area knew to avoid this region because there was these terribly violent, demon-possessed men, which Luke tells us these two men were possessed by a legion of demons. We read, Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? We see amazingly that these demons recognize to a degree of who Jesus is. What they don't recognize is what his plan of redemption is in the world. But but understand, why do these demons recognize it? And we don't don't necessarily want to go deeply into this. These demons would recognize God himself. Because these demons at one point were angels in heaven serving God himself. All demons are fallen angels. So if you think about this, you have to wonder, um, where were these demons originally before they fell? We're told in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So obviously it requires greater knowledge than than fallen angels, even those that are afraid of God, a belief that a saving 
belief that changes our life. But I digress into that. But we, we, they reference, are, are you going to torment us before the time? This is a time of final judgment when hell and Hades are hurled into the lake of fire that these demons knew that they were heading toward. This is a recognition of Jesus' authority. They basically are asking, what are you planning to do? Not what are you going to try to do, and we're going to try to keep you from doing it. They're basically like, oh, the big guy's here. What do you have in mind, Jesus? What are you going to do to us? This is a recognition of Jesus' authority, both his ability and his authority, his power to carry it out. And we read, now I heard of many pigs was feeding at some distance from there. Matthew likes to point out just how far Jesus can throw the ball, right? And so they were some distance from there, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Let me tell you something. Demons are all about death. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. I understand that that is a part of the Romans road that we use to understand the gospel, but understand Romans 6 is written to believers. Romans 6 is a warning to us. The other side of the door of temptation is death. I don't know why it is that we choose it over and over again, but we are warned Satan and his agenda is death. We read that these these men possessed by these demons dwelt in tombs, a place that living people try to stay out of. The demons love death is, is illustrated by their prompting the pigs to imitate lemmings and kill themselves rushing into the sea. The whole herd drowned in the waters. Death fits demons hand in glove. Jesus tells us in John 10, the thief, speaking of the, the devil, comes to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So after seeing his authority over the physical world, we're brought across the Sea of Galilee to see Jesus' authority over the spiritual world. We go from the natural to the supernatural. And from this event, I want to encourage you to trust Jesus' authority over the spiritual world that he dominates. Trust Jesus' authority over the spiritual world that he dominates. Mark 5 and Luke 8 give so much more detail about these men. They actually just focus on one of them for some reason. But, But both of these other synoptic gospels, synoptic means same viewpoint. So Matthew Mark and Luke talk about, they address so many of the same accounts, the same events that they have, kind of the same, they're looking at the same things together. These synoptic gospel writers also give greater detail on the conversation and the the process of the exorcism of these demons. But this points out to me that Matthew wants to 
emphasize that Jesus is in complete control over this situation. Oh, even over the soldiers of the opposition. I mean, imagine uh, two battles, two, two armies battling together. And one portion of, this, of an army, a legion of this army is marching around this hillside in order to flank the other side. And this one special general, so Army A is, is marching around this, this hillside to flank the Army B. And this one general just kind of walks out around the, around the hill. And, and, and uh, the general from Army B just kind of walks up. And, and Army A is like, oh, it's that guy. He's like, yeah. Get out of here. And they have to obey. Makes no difference that he's on the opposing team. Makes no difference that he's, he's you know, that, that he's what they're trying to, to deter, that he's what they're trying to, to interfere with. He's got the authority to basically say, yeah, get out of here. That's the authority that Matthew is showing, even though the op- opposing forces Jesus just says that they have to ask him, uh, can we do this instead? He's like, one, Matthew uses one word, go. Matthew is emphasizing that Jesus has complete control. The demons are depicted as begging, can we please just change residence into these pigs? Unfortunately, Matthew can't say no pigs were harmed in the uh, production of this exorcism. The men who weren't, uh, who were keeping the pigs, they weren't like, well, welcome back, thing one and thing two. No, they took off. They take off to explain why pork bellies are about to go up in the region. What was their react, the reaction of the people from the city that come out when they had heard what happened? We read in verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, we we tend to to want to make these townspeople out to be callous and disregarding of the Son of God. We, We see, we can be grieved, understanding what we know about Jesus. We can be grieved at how they were missing the opportunity for the king of kings to come and rule over the natural and supernatural world in their area. But we learn from Mark that this legion of demons transferred into about 2,000 pigs. All right, and the, the incident really scared these townspeople. And it probably set back their food supply as well. The InterVarsity Press Bible background commentary tells us this. Greeks, so these these are Gentiles. They, They usually categorize miracle workers as magicians or sorcerers. Because magicians and sorcerers were usually, uh, had a bad intent. And Jesus' coming had already cost these Gentiles from the Decapolis economically. Uh, he sank a lot of pork. These people were naturally terrified of him. So, so the image that they had in their mind of sorcerers or magicians was kind of like uh, Tim the sorcerer from uh, the Holy Grail, you know? 
um, just kind of walking around making things blow up and, and killing things and stuff like that. So their understanding here was, we got to get this guy out of here. He's just going to keep wreaking havoc on our region. But we are called to trust Jesus' authority over the spiritual world that he dominates with his power. One of the New Testament conversations that will soon in, in, in Jesus' lifetime express his authority will take place after Jesus is arrested. Even as it appears that Pilate holds all the aces and can decide Jesus' fate, as Jesus is, is bound and scourged and beaten and standing before Pilate, Jesus actually informs Pilate that Pilate is under Jesus' authority. You can read in John 18, Jesus answers Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews, that, that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And later in John 19, after Jesus comes back from being horribly beaten, he says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What a statement. Jesus recognizing, you know what? I actually hold all the cards. I wouldn't be standing here before you a bloody mess if it wasn't the will of my Father. And I am submitted to his will. In Ephesians 6, followers of Christ are encouraged to focus on where the real battle is taking place. We are essentially told not to be distracted by the human authorities that try to subvert God's plan. And we're told to fight with spiritual weaponry of prayer against spiritual forces. And recognizing the authoritative might of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is who we struggle against. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Then he goes on to explain the, the arsenal of our defense. And the one weapon that we have of offense being God's word. And in verse 18, he tells what we are to do with it all. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I don't know about you, but I spend way too much time focusing on the diversions away from the real battle. The real battle in the spirit world for the hearts, 
and souls of people. And as God's people, our battle isn't have to do with whether taxes should pay for someone's bag of fudge rounds. We need to be, what we need to be doing is engaging with God according to his battle plan through prayer. And we can trust his authority over the spiritual world that he dominates. You know, like those herdsmen who lost all those pigs, your day might get ruined when Jesus chooses to shake things up. But we can still praise him that he shakes things up according to his will. His will is better. Like those herdsmen, your livelihood might be affected when God is exercising his authority. And he can do that and we can trust that he's right in doing it because he is righteous and it all belongs to him. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I praise you for being capable and I praise you for having the right to use your power wherever you desire. And Lord, I and my friends here, we want to walk with you so that we can be attentive to where you're at work. We want to walk with you so that we can walk in freedom, so that we can experience your resurrection power over temptation, so that we can enjoy walking by your spirit, so that we can see you work, see you move, see you change hearts and lives. And Lord, if, if it would be your will that we would see you heal, that we would see you work in our physical world, that we would see you transform our brokenness so that we can serve you better. But Lord, when you choose not to, I pray, Father, that we would not lose heart, that we would not have fear overwhelm our faith. And Lord, help us in those times of fear to recognize that the answer is faith, trusting you. Lord, I thank you for your power and I thank you for your expression of it that we can learn from. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.